This is episode three of Movies, and today I have a special guest with me to discuss Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. What the fuck is that? What is that, Private Pile? Sir, jelly donut, sir. A jelly donut? Sir, yes, sir. How did it get here? Sir, I took it from the mess hall, sir. We have the critical unbeliever, a... I would describe you as a comedian from the YouTube. Would you say that's accurate? That's the first time anybody's ever called me a comedian. I appreciate it. It well, means he thinks I'm funny. You, you've done comedy. You have a new comedy video. It's kind of uh, critical of, uh, you know, the Bobby Burns. Yeah, guy, yeah. Who definitely... Yeah, you were in it. I did make an appearance in it, a brief appearance. Comedy's kind of a... It's a, it's in a weird spot right now, you know, with the whole post-comedy thing. and uh, But also, I, I feel like stand-up comedy is dying. Like, it's just, it yeah. feels like a 1920s form of art, you know, something like a, like vaudeville, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think it's long for this world. You know, I've, I've called it for a long time corporate comedy, right? Comedy that corporations know they can make money on isn't necessarily the funniest stuff. Uh, before, before Dave Chappelle had a, a, a running series on Comedy Central, the dude's edgiest jokes were hilarious. And now that he has his, you know, his solo shows, it's again funnier, funnier than any of his older material, I would say. And it's it's really this corporate, this corporate comedy. Comedy Central's done a lot to to help create this climate, and it's it's bad, you know. I've I I do consider myself somebody who tries to be a funny person regularly. And to see the restrictions that kind of get put on people in order to break into the mainstream really just really, really was a million dollar extreme uh, ousting from Adult Swim for a thousand million reasons that just blew my mind at that. That's when I was like, this we're done. We're done here. That and then we got the uh, the Roseanne cancellation immediately. Norm McDonald's in trouble now. And I'm, I'm surprised. Mm -hmm. I was actually shocked that netflix did not pull his show as a result of simply uh being a a bit sympathetic toward uh, roseanne and louis ck for imploding their careers or at least seemingly imploding their careers for sure do you think that we're gonna rebound out of this because it's gonna go somewhere right i mean is it just continually downhill from here or are we gonna see people somehow get back on an upward trajectory where this is a viable medium in some form, whether that might be stand-up or podcasting or, or just making videos. I think, I think what we need is something tantamount to uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus or the Monty Python early, early films, something that is 100% different from what everybody else is doing it, with the intention of drawing you away from them. There's a lot of... Uh, well, that, that actually, you know, that that's great because there actually is something out there. It's called Nanette. I don't know if you've seen this, Nanette. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's truly unlike anything else I've seen before, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> that can't... That cannot be our future. But I, I mean, I think we need so something... Uh, that isn't just the the Tim and Eric ripoffs like me, or or the uh, hey guys, you know I'm I'm Louis Louis CK 2.0, uh, a little cleaner. I'm you know I'm not gonna trap you in my bedroom and jack off in front of you. Like I, we don't need that. We need something that legitimately nukes nukes comedy the way it is for the better, rather than uh, taking it and shaping it into something different. I don't know if we're going to wind up getting that. I would love to think so, but really. 
all of the recent comedy, especially, I feel like is just an evolution of something earlier. Definitely with stand-up, definitely with visual comedy, whether that be films. Really, do they even make comedy movies anymore? When was the last real like <laughs> comedy movie that came out in theaters? Yeah, I couldn't tell you. Was I it, couldn't tell you. Was it Girls' Night with Scarlett Johansson in the Broad City? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know why that movie came to mind, but I can't think of any comedy film that really came out this year. I'm so out of the loop. What came to my head was the first Horrible Bosses film. Oh, God. And that's from like 2012 that was or like something. 15 years ago. Jesus. <laughs> Man, uh, comedy films have just not been doing it for me for a while. What do they get? They're going to cast Dak Shepard in it and they're going to be like, just just riff for a little while. Or who, who's the who's the blonde haired guy that just got in trouble for for being a pervert from the IT, not the IT club, from uh, that HBI, the HBO show. About the IT guys, I, oh, Silicon uh, Valley. Oh, oh, jeez. Uh, um, yeah, are him. you talking about TJ Miller? TJ Miller. I feel like I feel like TJ Miller, Dax Shepard. Those guys are perfect representations for the state of comedy right now. God, Shit, TJ Miller. He did everything wrong. That guy. <laughs> he was in the like. I don't know if you saw. You know, this is not a political show. Maybe I'll sure. cut this part, but he did a he did an interview where he's talking about how he was scolding all of his co-stars on Silicon Valley for not contributing enough to the Hillary Clinton campaign. <laughs> so that happens. He quits Silicon Valley because he's got the Emoji movie. He's about to be a big star. He's a voice actor in the Emoji movie. And then that movie kind of bombs, right? And then he goes on a drunken bender. He's got these accu- accusations hurled at him, and he calls in a bomb threat while he's Those on a train. Bomb- <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, man. All courtesy of Unsubco. Nobody could have predicted that he would intentionally self-implode like that. I oh. figured a coke bender, but the dude had it. He was just in a Michael Bay film. He could probably get into every Michael Bay film ever after that. You know, all you got to do is show up in one, and he'll keep calling you. You got to think he. Oh wait a minute, he was in Deadpool too, and there was a discussion as to whether or not they were gonna cut him. But that also brings well, it back to comedy because I feel like Deadpool really was looked at as something new for the comedy and like more so superhero genre. But we haven't seen a movie like that really, uh, not on a grand scale. Like you, you can look at James Gunn's Super, where it blends comedy and dark comedy with superhero aspects or whatever but deadpool kind of created something new and then with deadpool 2 i thought they kind of shit the bed with that one personally we kind of just redid deadpool yeah yeah and it that's, felt that's how i felt much safer to me like yeah. deadpool was kind of I, I hate using this term non-ironically kind of edgy and then deadpool 2 was like okay you know what what can we make right now that's really going to appeal to like the twelve year old boys that are paying to see this movie? And he'll he'll just do and say things that aren't particularly funny but are vulgar, and they think that's comedy. Like that's that's a big flaw with a lot of novice comedy writing is oh well you know if it's a swear or if it's a sex act that means it's going to be funny, and that's really the direction yeah. they took Deadpool in. Also, yeah. T.J. Miller was in Ready Player One, so good for him. Still getting work. Yeah, good for him. Still, <clears throat> I mean, yeah, it's it's cool. Like uh, some people get to clean bathrooms after they used to be the janitor at a high school. They clean the bathroom at a park. Yeah. So at least he still has a job. I think that was a, a voice acting gig as well. I, th- I really only see those types of roles being his income. Uh, well, he moving can't forward. he can't act if he can't act. But dude, 
the dude's body is horrible. Like he can't keep himself <laughs> on camera the right way. He just can't. I don't know. There's something about his entire posture is like he's mindful of the fact that he's acting. You know, those people that that actually you do. You just made a comedy video about it. People that are very mindful of the way that they're acting. So it's it just yeah. sucks. Actually, I, you know, I, I went back to my letterbox list because I like to keep track of all the movies I watch in a particular year and then I'll put them in order. The comedy films that have come out this year were Action Point. And I've been, I was on a real jackass kick for a second where I was introducing my girlfriend to those movies because she didn't watch any of them. And then I was like, oh, well, I, I didn't hear about this movie at all. Johnny Knoxville and Chris Pontius have a like a stunt comedy like film. Like an all-stunt comedy, yeah. Yeah, it came out this year. Perfect. This is great. No, it, it was one of the worst <laughs> things I've ever seen in my entire life. It was really... Sure. <sighs> I, I I won't even get into that. Super Troopers Two was another comedy movie that had come out this year, and I'll tell you what it was. It, it was it fell victim to the same uh, syndrome that every late comedy sequel falls victim to, where the humor is aged back in that particular era. Like Super Troopers came out in two thousand. I don't know if you liked that movie or not. I, I yeah, I did. I I, I liked it. Uh, I thought it was funny at the time, but it was really just like. That same type of comedy, and we're obviously away from that now. Humor has a has an expiration date of about five to ten years. Right. Um, yeah. And- it, it, the the I saw I think the vast majority of Super Troopers too before I I ducked out, and uh, it did felt it did feel like it was a a copy and paste of Super Troopers, um, but without any of the the fourth side of comedy because even super troopers give it a couple of years and it's, it's super funny in 2005, you know, because yeah. of the, that's the way comedy evolved to really fit the, those guys like style. Uh, by now, maybe, uh, maybe a little played out. It's, it's sort of like this new disenchanted, this new, like a uh, Simpsons esque show that's on Netflix right now. Mm. It's, it <clears throat> really feels like it's, a worse version of Futurama. Like y'all, you, you, you pitch that show by saying, "Remember how we made Futurama? Well, what if it was instead in a fantasy world?" And then, okay, that's it. All right, do that exactly. It doesn't have that 2018 feel. I just noticed one uh, film on my list that was a comedy and came out this year and has gotten zero attention whatsoever. And it was funny. It was. It made me laugh a couple of times, which is. Uh, kind of rare to do if you're a, a comedy film, um, but it was not really a great movie. The Legacy of the White Tail Deer Hunter, which was directed by Jody Hill, who did Eastbound and Down, uh, Vice Principals. Great shows. Uh, yeah, very funny shows. Vice Principals to me is kind of like the end of the comedy television era. Mm. That That feels like the last chapter in that where it was a genuinely funny show. And it wasn't afraid to make really risque jokes that could get you in trouble right now. And it had a clear beginning, middle, and end. It was almost like a movie. He put out this film this year, and it starred Josh Brolin and Danny McBride. And Danny McBride's kind of in like a peripheral role, but he's pretty funny. He's got at least one gag in the movie that involves photographs that made me fucking howl with laughter. I thought it was so funny and inappropriate. But the movie was kind of whatever, and nobody even knows it exists. It went direct to Netflix. Good idea. That's yeah. always good for your film. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> his movies haven't really seemed to connect with audiences. Did you ever see Observe and Report? 
Yes, I, I actually liked Observe Report. Yeah. Um, this, despite, I think Seth Rogen's not, like, he's not my favorite guy. I've made fun of him in videos in the past. He's not my favorite comedy actor, so I don't mm-hmm. think he's much of a of a comedy actor as much as he's just a goofy-sounding guy. But I really actually liked, I liked that role for him, and I liked the way that film was filmed, right? It had, uh, for a comedy, it was significantly more cinematic than a lot of comedies, right? Trying to play into this dude's psychosis. Yeah, it was like Taxi Driver mixed with Paul Blart. And that came out the same year as Paul Blart, which kind of killed this movie. And, you know, uh, with Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, same case. Platoon overshadows that, but we'll get into that movie. Uh, Anyway, let's stop talking about comedy. We'll start talking about Full Metal Jacket. You're a real comedian. Well, they call me the Joker. (laughs) Well, I got a joke for you. I'm going to tear you a new asshole. Full Metal Jacket, Stanley Kubrick's penultimate film. It's one that, I'll tell you what, I I feel like it's not talked about as much now as perhaps it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. As far as his whole anthology of films go, have you seen all of Kubrick's movies or most of Kubrick's movies? Yeah, I've I've seen all of Kubrick's movies. It's definitely not one that is mentioned that often as like a favorite or one of his best films. What is your take on Full Metal Jacket, both as a movie and how it stacks up to the other movies in his filmography? Well, you know, I per- personally, I've always felt like it was the, uh, one of those, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so sorry. One of those films that appreciating it as a Stanley Kubrick film, film and appreciating it as a film would be like two different things. Yeah, You know, I I think a lot of people come into it expecting the visual spectacle from maybe like 2001 A Space Odyssey or something with uh, blatant commentary like Dr. uh, Dr. Strangelove. uh, Yeah, Dr. Strangelove. Thank you. I was going to say Dr. Too Good. Um, Like Dr. Strangelove, something like within those two dynamics. But instead you get a, a, a visually interesting film that only uses so much of the color palette and a common a social commentary that's that's hidden within it that one quick view through the film isn't gonna it's not gonna stand out as the core of the film but watching it two or three times or even five years ten years later especially after another conflict has happened you really get a sense of the the narrative he's trying to tell like that that big that bigger story he's trying to deliver with full metal jacket so i get why people might not think of it as a one of stanley kubrick's top films and it's probably not it's obviously not in his top five, hmm. but it's not the low point of his career at, by any means. It's not, <clears throat> and it's, it's certainly not a bad movie, obviously, but it's, I think it stacks up well with other films. It's just not the same, it's not the same Kubrick that you might get from, like I said, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, it really visually stunning, you know, comparatively. Right. And it, what's interesting is I don't think it got the attention it deserved at the time because it was coming right off of the heels of Platoon. Platoon had won Best Picture in, well, it, it came out in 86. The Academy Awards was probably in 87, which is the same year that Platoon, uh, Full Metal Jacket was released. Yeah. So I think some of the buzz had died down about this movie as a result of that. And also, you know, The Shining at the time was not a big hit. That got uh, critically panned uh, back in... What was it? Nineteen eighty. It came out, 
and it was looked at as kind of a flop. Right. So Kubrick was not really at the pinnacle of his career. And before that, Barry Lyndon even, like even though it got uh, awards uh, nominations, that was not really looked at with the same kind of eyes as uh, Lolita or Dr. Strangelove. What, you know, what's interesting that you touched on was, um, you know, his commentary in this movie, because he seems, if you look over his filmography, he clearly has some kind of preoccupation with just the concept of war. And you look at Paths of Glory, you look at Dr. Strangelove, you look at this movie, and it highlights all these darker aspects to war that maybe, you know, were not as shown at the time, especially, you know, Dr. Strangelove back in the 60s kind of condemning men in power, the people who decide to make these wars happen. But I don't really get a like a condemnation of war from this movie, right. which is what's interesting to me. It's not that obvious, I guess, is... is what I'm getting at here. Yeah, I would, I would, <clears throat> sorry, I would have to agree because it, it's really not so much a condemnation of war as much as it is just a, an explanation of a pretty common event in war. You mm. know, a lot of times, especially war movies, if you think like Platoon or even Deer Hunter, those are really isolated situations that don't happen to everybody. Or everything about Full Metal Jacket is and definitely feels like run of run of the mill regular vietnam this is the vietnam you might have experienced if you lived yes right and uh, it it's contrast to other films at the time if you think the opening shot of platoon um charlie sheen taylor getting off of the the plane walking by body bags and you know seasoned soldiers that are mocking them as they walk by compared to the scene of guys getting their head shaved to a, a 1960s country song the opening scene of full metal jacket you know yeah it, it it should tell you that the the story he's trying to tell isn't hey things get blown up and and people get hurt in war, but really the mental the mental progress that goes from whoever you are when you show up you know you, you show up you're you're <clears throat> who whoever you are a nice guy from Minnesota you end up being just another grunt walking around in Vietnam in front of burning buildings having just shot somebody. Right. Like that, and that path is really more interesting of uh, narrative coming from Kubrick than it would have other people. You had mentioned uh, leading up to this podcast that you were kind of looking into the background of the film and uh, interviews with the stars Matthew Modine and uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. And I, I had read, uh, well, I didn't read, I listened to the audiobook of an app that was essentially a book that was, you know, it was, it was a memoir that Matthew Modine put out through an app. And they recently did an audiobook called Full Metal Jacket Diary that basically documented him getting cast in the role of Joker up until the film's conclusion and even um, the short amount of time before Stanley Kubrick's death where he tried to get in touch with Kubrick as he was working on Eyes Wide Shut. And he wound up dying like two weeks later or something like that. Did you pick up anything interesting from the interviews? Were they recent interviews or were they from back around the time of the premiere or what did yeah, you wind the, up gathering the most recent ones that i watched were probably uh post 2000 but there's a uh one from i wouldn't say the mid 90s where matthew modine talks about how he didn't get cast because of the the reel that he sent <clears throat> stanley kubrick where 
Uh, I rumor has it that it would have been hundreds of other actors that sent reels to Stanley Kubrick when they found out that he was doing this Vietnam film. You know, both trying to get into a popular genre and a Kubrick film at the same time, right? A war movie and a Kubrick film. And I guess when he got Matthew Modine's reel, he watched the whole thing and wasn't impressed by that, but was mm -hmm. specifically impressed by Matthew Modine just like hanging out afterwards, just kind of being himself because his. Yeah. His, I guess, on-screen performance at the time was supposed to be maybe a little bit more of a, like, dreamboat Hollywood 1980s sexy guy. Yeah. And that was his, his, his natural persona was the opposite of that. He came off a little bit more hardened than he acted. And that's what really drew, drew Stanley Kubrick to it. And then Vincent D'Onofrio, he has a story of Kubrick saying, you know, I really like you because of, of his build and the way he could project his voice in certain situations. But he wanted uh, him to put on some weight. So oh, Vincent yeah. D'Onofrio put on 60 pounds and <laughs> contacted Kubrick again and said, hey, I put on 60 pounds. And he said, well, you look big, but you look like you'd kick everybody out, everybody's ass. I need you to look fat. So he put on another 20 uh, pounds. Yeah. He said he finished somewhere close to 275, 280 that has now become Vincent D'Onofrio. He's just been like perpetually on again, <laughs> off again, fat. And he's back in a fat stage where he's playing yeah, yeah. Uh, Kingpin on, on Daredevil. Uh, Kubrick's, um, Kubrick's assistant was in that, that same interview with Modine and Vincent D'Onofrio at the same time. And he was saying that he really thinks that that particular request of Kubrick messed with D'Onofrio's uh, physique permanently. Yeah. So that he he's just forever a kind of a big dude because of it. But just to me, that that that's the most Kubrick thing I think ever is to say, like, you really have to put your, your whole anatomy at risk to be in my film. What I was kind of interested in also was that D'Onofrio, I don't think, was an actor before. But he was a bouncer. Yeah. And he was friends with Matthew Modine. That's how they became interlinked. And he wound up getting that role. Arlie Ermey plays the drill instructor in the film. Do you know the story about how he was brought in to kind of give lessons to the guy who was playing the drill instructor, and then eventually he was so good at what he was doing that he just wound up replacing the guy? Yeah, yeah. He uh, Arlie Emery actually says that he sought out the opportunity to replace that guy. He wanted that role. When he showed up, he started training these guys, and then was like, "I I want this role. I want to be I want to be the drill instructor." and uh, originally, it went to <clears throat> God, you're gonna kill me for not remember the, the guy. Uh, he's he, who's who's on the Huey with them, and he's sh he's shooting the Vietnamese chicks and and uh, uh, oh, the guy in the chopper. Uh, yeah, yeah. Joker asked him, "How can you shoot women and children?" And he's like, "Zizi, you just don't lead them so much." Yeah. That guy was actually supposed to be the drill instructor originally, but Arlie Emery wanted it, and obviously, having been being a vet, knowing exactly what drill instructors are like exactly how a gunnery sergeant would act just came in and did himself in his old job and Kubrick really really couldn't say no at that point and that also kind of built his career a lot of careers were built on this movie I would say this is Matthew Modine's legitimate breakout role but what did what did he do what did he do before that yeah I think he literally was uh as you described just like that good-looking male actor that would be in uh you know the teen cheesy films that came out before then i'm i you know he did have like a modest career afterward yeah. and he's kind of had more of a resurgence lately with um dark knight rises stranger things season one and a couple of other movies that have come out mm -hmm. oh he was in sicario as well the sequel Sicario right. uh, day the soldado before that i think he was 
literally just in I'm I'm trying to remember if there were any like notable movies off the top of my head. No. No, Vision Quest no, I'm looking, maybe. I'm looking no, not really. He was in a couple of music videos for Madonna, but yeah, the, no. The he, Transporter 2, which you know, I don't know how that didn't win a thousand awards. <laughs> oh, he was in Pacific Heights with Michael Keaton in 1990. Oh right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he he spent a good portion of time in uh, that show Weeds. This movie started production in 1985, and one particular aspect of the the movie that I recall from Full Metal Jacket Diary is that he Kubrick was constantly tinkering with the script at like every point. He was not really ever satisfied uh, with the actual material that he was shooting, and he would always gauge. The actors and the crew, like, what do you, what do you guys think should be the ending? We're yeah. gonna decide. We're gonna take a group vote on what the ending of this movie should be. Because the, the original, make this better. <laughs> yeah, the original ending, I believe, and I could be wrong about this, was Joker dying. Joker yeah. was supposed to die. Kubrick was hung up on Joker dying. Modine said, "Oh no, he should go home and have a happy life or whatever." Right. The 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 thing. Um... <clears throat> Adam Baldwin says is that in his script, even still to this day, the script that he has has animal animal mother cutting the head off of yeah. the the sniper after uh, to one up Joker, Joker after he right. shoots the woman right and hearing that I guess a lot of people say like that'd be too visceral for Full Metal Jacket but to me it just logically doesn't make sense that no. everybody would stand around with that scene especially animal being like just do it you know just just kill her and not being the guy to take his gun out and do it instead and then cut the head off you know like like he pussied out and then decided you know what never mind i do want to do it and cut the head off that didn't that doesn't sound right it doesn't so, ring true it really doesn't it really doesn't i i like the ending i like obviously analyzing the ending in the future and being like it's foreshadowed in the center whenever uh, Joker is sitting inside of Stars and Stripes and he's typing and his editor says, <clears throat> pick out a war story where it has a happy ending, only one person dies. And that's essentially what happens in that final that final scene. One person dies and it has a happy ending where they're walking off into a, a fake sunset with happy music that they're singing. I like that foreshadowing. I, I prefer the ending the way it is. And I, I watched an interview with um, Jack Nicholson on the the set of The Shining for, I guess it's a documentary from the behind the scenes of the making. Uh And it's Stanley Kubrick and Jack Nicholson sitting. And the woman says, ask him something like, did you learn your lines from the script? He says, I don't even read the script at this point. Uh, Stanley and I talk. They send some something up to the top. They bring me a new script in the morning. I read through it and I put it down and I go. So I, I would definitely believe that he would crowdsource from the actors. How do you think we should end this film? What do you think this should look like? And you could see him doing it with with Jack Nicholson in The Shining too. Like uh, he he asks him, "Do you think it'd be good if I stand underneath you?" Yeah, <laughs> gets under. You know, he's gotten such a reputation for being this meticulous director, and he isn't. You know, he's a contradiction because on one hand, yeah, yeah, like you will hear those stories about seventy takes in a day for one minuscule scene, um, and at the same time, he's making a lot of it up as he goes along. Uh, and, and, you know, Full Metal Jacket's definitely a case of that. And as you said before, The Shining, like they tried so many different takes of him chopping that door in and mm-hmm. g- delivering one line after another. You know, here's Johnny was improvised by Nicholson. 
probably after 30 takes or something like that. And that's the one that worked. Are you familiar at all with uh, The Short Timers, which is the book that this movie's based on? Oh, no, no, I'm not, actually. I, I think I watched a brief synopsis on it, but I've I've not read anything of it, to be honest. I've been trying to find this book all over the Internet, and I can't find... Like, all right, well, here's the thing. I can't I can't really sit down and read anymore. My fucking brain <laughs> yeah. has been spoiled by the internet, so I have to listen to audiobooks in order to take in any kind of literary uh, uh, whatever. Uh, and there's nothing on this book. But it was apparently a semi-autobiographical novel by a former Marine. They took this and just mangled it into full metal jacket i don't know how much it you know, actually translates over i know i know how hubert came across it i know that at the time i i want to say right in 1980 he really wanted to make i think he just canned a napoleon film that he was thinking about maybe that was a little bit later i think you would know napoleon was all throughout the 60s the 70s and he kind of put the kibosh on that project in i want to say the early 1980s because okay. um he was ready to go with it. They got all the wardrobe. They were scouting locations. Nicholson was going to play Napoleon. And then something happened that triggered the studio to pull the plug on it. And it just didn't happen. It's Because I, I, as far as I recall, it was around that same time he asked, um, again, this would be his assistant. I wish I knew this guy's name. I looked for it for a long Are time. You, uh, is it Leon Vitale? Yes, Leon Vitale. He, he, said, he said, find me a book. Find me a war story. It's less about war and more about the story. Something to that effect. You know, that that dude adds a lot of drama to the conversations that he has with Stanley. And that was the that was the the book he brought back to him. And I guess Stanley was just enamored with it, loved it, liked everything about it, and really wanted to base his story off of that that boots on the ground, that grunt style. And you know, back back to uh, back to what I was saying about the color palette. That realistic. Like really olive drab everything and then not really color correcting it to give you any bright visuals and just using almost totally natural light. Yeah, that's that's something that feels like it's pulled more out of a, a, a book put onto film rather than just something made up for a movie. You know, mm. it, it gives that honest aesthetic that you would imagine in your head when you're reading through a book. You can kind of if you look at things like that, you can kind of see where it's been adapted from from actual literature. Yeah. That's an interesting observation. And you know, I I don't think I directly noticed the color palette before, but it does have a distinctly different look to it than other war movies. And you know, I I had ascribed that to maybe it being a set cuz Kubrick never really left England, so they would just build up these cities and jungles and everything else right in uh you know, what limited studio lots that they had. But, uh, yeah, you, you think about, like, Platoon, and it's popping with color. It's taking advantage of the location, absolutely. Even, you know, uh, Apocalypse Now. But, yeah, th this movie definitely has just kind of a straight, drab look to it. It really sets the tone for the film. You know, a, a common complaint about the movie as well is that a lot of people vibe that first half of the movie and not always the second. Like, I can say, for me personally, when I first saw this movie, probably when I was like 14 years old, that was probably the case for me. I actually didn't, I didn't like Full Metal Jacket as much as Platoon when I was a kid. 
But sure. obviously, as time went on, you know, you develop an appreciation for different aspects of it. You kind of get in tune to uh, certain elements that maybe you were just too dumb or immature or whatever it might be to comprehend at the time. Do you look at one half of the movie as even separate from the other half, let alone inferior? Like, like kind of. I, I Again, it's, it's biased because of my current perspective of film and how much I enjoy Kubrick films in general, and actually the genre of Vietnam, to where, for me, it's not two films, because it's a it's more of a film about one thing explained in two parts. Yeah. Right? If it's supposed to be about kind of the cliche about the duality of man type thing, or um, maybe the, the change from being innocent into being somebody with a lot of guilt and regret, that really can't be explained in one linear story. You know, there's a bunch of stuff in the middle that a lot of other movies would probably fill in with action and gun gunfights. You know, Pl- Platoon kind of has that going on. Uh, a lot of those movies have a lot more gunfights than the even the second half of Full Metal Jacket. And I think that because of that 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 tone, it's not hard to really just watch the movie as one thing. But this this two different settings without ever going backwards is really what I think breaks it up. If you watch movies like uh, Mission Impossible, see it jumps around different parts of the world, but sure. always ends up back at where it started. You know, the Avengers, they might go to Africa for a moment, but then they come back to the Avengers Tower. This movie, it starts out in Camp Pendleton and then just goes straight to Vietnam. And that, that breaks people up. You know, that's a very Kubrick thing to do to – to to break up the the what you're expecting right subvert subvert your expectations you think this is going to be like a, what's the film Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood mm-hmm. a film very much about training very much about the incompetence of the the troops where Full Metal Jacket has to show you that these guys go from incompetent to killers and th- that I think makes a a better two part film. Than looking at it as two different films, you know, it's I'm not, I'm not to say that those people are wrong or dumb, but like they're wrong and dumb. I see this a whole lot on Rotten Tomatoes. They have this built-in notion of what a movie's supposed to be. It has to hit these certain mm-hmm. check marks. You see that mostly, I think, with superhero films, where if something de- deviates a little too much, then they will punish it with their review, or you know, it'll lose points in their book. You know, what? that's that's probably I don't mean to cut you off. No, that's probably ahead. a problem like for I guess people for us that would say like we really enjoy film versus people that say I like to watch movies is when I watch a, when I watch a film, I actually I have beats that I expect a film to hit. Yeah. But I appreciate it when it doesn't hit those beats and it does it right. You know, think about uh, Shigura in the one of the last scenes in No Country for Old Men sitting in the room with I, I couldn't remember the woman's name. And she comes in, and you know that he's going to kill her. But rather than the Coen brothers showing you that you know he blows her brains out or whatever, it just shows the front of the house, and he comes out and checks his boots like he had before. It's it's those types of like subverting my expectations that I appreciate almost more than somebody who can hit all the right beats perfectly. Yeah, like uh, the whole movie of The Last Jedi. That subverted everyone's expectations. <laughs> I think in the wrong way, though. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well. Yeah, I would be pretty annoyed if, if Shigura, 
you know, killed that woman, came out, checked his boots, and then used the force to fly back into a spaceship. That would yeah. have been pretty annoying. <laughs> Maybe you should have a heart attack and die right at the end. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Fall off a rock. That's the end of the movie. I think a lot of it is the, the story, again, of the loss of innocence. Mm. And I, I think you could very well make a case that it's like, like a really strong anti-war film. Because you take, especially with somebody like Joker who shows up and is happy, and even in training where he supposedly just had a shit day getting his head shaved, and now everybody's getting yelled at, and he's still making jokes and cracking jokes, all the way up to these these fake documentary scenes. You can see the guy slowly turning into this like hardened death machine, and I I would assume that from that Kubrick would want to be telling us not you know not just like hey war is bad because I think anybody could say that but that the the wars and the way that we perceive them it aren't necessarily always filled with heroes right you know it so so maybe you would say uh the U.S. won or lost Vietnam but doesn't matter considering how many people lost who they were when they showed up to Vietnam you think that young 14-year-old girl is a sniper by herself, 14, 15-year-old girl is a sniper by herself, holding off these hardened killers. You know, that in itself is a narrative sort of about the the, the war machine of America. Right. You know, that, and that's kind of what happened in a lot of ways is this small jungle jungle country of, of practically no, with practically no population did manage to hold off, you know, the biggest military force in the world to some extent. And it it gets it gets explained so many times that these aren't the good guys. Just because you're watching a movie about the the winning team or who you think is the good guys, they're not really the good guys. Yeah, they don't really set up any kind of narrative for the audience to follow, you know, outside of, you know, if you weren't an American citizen and you knew nothing at all about the Vietnam War and you just go into Full Metal Jacket, like, there's no real incentive for them to be going after the people, uh, the Vietnamese, but what he might be trying to communicate about war itself is a, perhaps a little grayer. Yeah, because I think if you look at, if you look at movies like Platoon, right, it has str these strong bits of Americana. Uh, if you look at, again, Deer Hunter, it kind of explains uh, these guys maybe went through more than you might think of. These guys maybe had extra turmoils. That's that's the point of the 40-yard the stare and all that stuff. Mm. I think maybe, maybe Kubrick intends for some films to have uh, more than one narrative and more than one interpretation. It, that, that maybe you should come out of it with your own perspective of it. Maybe that's not wrong to say it's a it's a boring war film, and maybe it's not wrong to say it's one of the most action-packed films you've ever seen. It just depends on how you want to define those terms within the Kubrick realm. I, I would say like there's a lot of suspense in that film. If I was to describe it as a suspense film, I, I wouldn't be very hard to take a few shots and show like, look at these guys um, creeping up on this sniper. Look at, let's say like, um, uh, eight ball being stuck in the mud while while she's the sniper shooting down on them yeah. you know not to go off on a tangent but this was actually one of the first films that i saw someone get shoot somewhere other than the chest or the head get shot somewhere other than the chest or the head you know eight ball takes shots to the leg gets his foot blown to pieces mm -hmm. and all of all of that stuff when you talk about the narrative of a war film a lot of times you show people getting shot in the chest and stuff 
not to not to show the gore, but to kind of paint somebody as the uh, the the good guy, you know. And this, when people take hits in different ways, and it's a little grosser, it, it subverts that that intended like, oh, that's what this is about. This is a killer, brutal movie. And yeah, yeah, maybe it's it's intended to, to come away from it with more than one perspective. Your intent to come away from it with more than one perspective. One, one of the things I do love about it, just to get back on the set and the visual look of the whole film, is that unlike the other popular Vietnam War films or even unpopular Vietnam War films, uh, it takes us out of the jungle and plants us like right in life for the Vietnamese. Ur- urban Vietnam. Right. And it's got this grungier look to it as a result. You're seeing decaying buildings. You know, they're dealing with these prostitutes directly. They're like, they're just trying to live life in, in the slums, basically. And shit goes bad. It's, it almost feels like the Hurt Locker. Like, yeah. a, like a modern war film that would be set in Afghanistan or Iraq. Or So that's another thing that I kind of personally appreciate about the movie. Also, I looked it up. This movie, I, I, it has to be because of Platoon, was completely snubbed at the Academy Awards, aside from one nomination for... For screenplay? Yes, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was the only one. Arlie Ermey picked up a Golden Globe, I believe, yeah, nomination. He didn't get a win for this movie, and that was the only nomination at the Golden Globes that year for this, which is crazy to me like what what the fuck was nominated in 1987 that they couldn't fit in full metal jacket for best picture you know i think it would end up being the trend of war movies at the time you think vietnam war movies are always explosions and and death um maybe like ram rambo first blood two you know yeah stuff like that stuff like that is is the academy at the at the time really just voting on trends Really just about non-trans and not quality. The best picture winner that year was The Last Emperor, which was about that little Chinese boy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. So just not great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, look I, I haven't seen that movie in ages, but come on. I mean, and I'm looking at the other nominees. Broadcast News, that is a good movie. Fatal Attraction, that's a good movie. I don't know if it really holds up as much. Moonstruck, that's certainly not one that holds up. Uh, and Hope and Glory, which I have not seen, so I can't really comment on it. Oh, it was done by John Borman, who did Exorcist Two: The Heretic. Did you ever see that one? Yeah, that's... Uh, well, what? I've seen Exorcist Two. I didn't see that film, though. Yeah, what a weird movie Exorcist Two is. I gotta, I, I, I'll, I'll probably have that for a future episode. Good idea. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is a strange, strange movie in that chrono- chrono- chronology. That's the word. That um, whole series is just a mess. Uh, Exorcist 3 has kind of gotten a bit of a resurgence lately of respect. And then the whole mess with the prequels with Paul Schrader and Rennie Harlan, where they were Schrader had done a movie that I think they wound up releasing, even though the special effects, they weren't finished. It was called Dominion. Uh, and then they did Rennie Harlan. Uh, his movie took over Paul Schrader's movie that went out in theaters. That was Exorcist the beginning. And now it's a TV show and oof. None of it's good. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't. What I would like to see more about what happened to the Exorcist series because coming off that first film, you would think the the next one would at least be close to something that that's 
decent, but I hardly know anybody that's seen it aside from, you know, us. Yeah, Exorcist, you know, <laughs> this is now the Exorcist podcast. Exorcist 2 was supposed to be, and I don't know if this really would have worked as a movie. The original idea for that, there was a script where it was going to be another priest, kind of like Richard Burton's character in Exorcist 2, but he was doing like a, I think he was doing a journalistic report. I might have this part wrong, but he was interviewing all of the characters from the first Exorcist and going over what had happened, essentially. So you mm -hmm. would just be doing like Exorcist, Greatest Hits, but in the sequel. And I don't, I don't think that would have worked as a movie, but it would have been maybe interesting to see. Little known fact here, uh, Martin Scorsese prefers uh, The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, to The Exorcist, the original. Interesting. Well, yeah. Martin Scorsese is one of those guys that might be saying that just to, just to be saying that, though. I don't know. No, I mean, it's possible. I don't know who Martin Scorsese is as a person, but... His feedback no, you could, dropped. You could rely on me. I know him personally. <laughs> yeah, his his feedback dropped back in like the late seventies or so, right after he had seen the movie, which is such a very peculiar take. I I don't know. Um, That's strange. Uh, back to what you were saying about the urban setting of Full Metal Jacket. If you watch the film and really pay attention, you can pick up on the similar narrative for what Joker is going through being displayed in the uh, settings, yeah. right? So at the very beginning, it's this clean, structured, uh, these perfect buildings. That is the barracks at the camp, you know, at the in boot camp. And then in Vietnam, first at the Stars and Stripes, it's again, it's an established camp. Uh, he has a workspace, maybe a little bit cluttered here mm. and there, but overall, it's very well put together. And then the next one is the Vietnamese city, but it's not yet blown up. There's not yet bullets everywhere. There's not much destruction. It's just kind of slummy. And then the next time they're in a in a, a broken down temple, and it's all fucked up, parts broken down everywhere, but still mostly structured. By the time they get to the sniper fight, every single bit building is riddled with holes. They're not the first people that have been there. They've already been tanks that have rolled through this place. They're fighting a building that looks like they've already shot it up. You know, that really iconic scene of them shooting the face of the building, trying to just hit anybody there. Right. right. And all, all those blasts going everywhere. And then the final scene, you can't see the setting. There's just fire. There's just fire and some guys walking um, both directions, you know, this way and then that way. And it really plays out the same story that you're watching with humans while using the structures. And only Kubrick would have the mind to do that. You know, he's mindful of that, too. You know, in his mind, he knows he started out showing these guys and the buildings in the same context. And then at the end, he's showing them the same way. Broken and disheveled, nowhere near the, the condition they were when they showed up. I don't think a typical director would, you know, maybe nowadays somebody trying to emulate that kind of style of filmmaking. But back in 1987, I don't think anybody really had an eye like that where they would think to do that as they were maybe making the film. Well, Arlie Emery straight up said, like, Kubrick would see a fly in the back of his shot that he didn't want to be there and stop the shot and start again uh -huh. until that fly was out of the frame. Who do you think gives the best performance in the movie? I, I think Vincent D'Onofrio is, has, personally, Vincent D'Onofrio has got to be um, the most interesting character from it, and that's, just so, solely from his performance. You know, Private Pile has the most change that happens to him, which personally I enjoy in a film is when a character goes through a lot of change. 
He has the most um, trauma invoked on on him personally through multiple different scenes. Mm -hmm. And his breakdown isn't isn't over the course of, you know, the whole movie. It happens within a few short minutes in the final part of the first act and culminates in, I mean, one of the more iconic scenes in film history by disaster. Right. That that rapid evolution there. Yeah, I, I think I would have to agree with you that D'Onofrio's performance is just, and not to take away from anybody else in the movie, but really next level. Him and Arlie Ermey, maybe that's part of the reason why a lot of people feel kind of betrayed as they get into the second half, because you you do lose those two tent poles of that opening, and you just have to carry on with Joker. And, you know, again, no, nothing against Matthew Modine, but compared to some of the other characters in the film, it is definitely like how I met your mother syndrome, where maybe he's not the most interesting, you know, the lead characters, not as compelling as some of the sides there. But um, yeah, D'Onofrio's amazing, especially for a starter role. Um, and I feel like that character is so familiar. Like I'm, th- I, I, you know, I think back to like high school and I definitely knew a guy that was private pile who would just, yeah. you know, he was a, he was a, Fat tub of lard and got picked on all the time. Didn't do a goddamn thing about <laughs> it. Didn't really ever stick up for himself. Just kept taking it. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's probably, uh, you know, plotting his revenge right now. Well, I like to talk how, like, how movies kind of create a bit of a, a meta. Like, like movies, super influential, 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 excuse me. And they kind of create a bit of a meta. And in our minds, after, you know, after Columbine, if he had a certain look, Rather than referring to somebody as like, oh, that dude looks like he would do some, you know, kill a cat like on Gummo. The thing that you would probably reference is that guy looks like he would shoot up a school if they had that look, maybe that Columbine-esque aesthetic. Right. Well, like with uh, with Private Pile, that's so iconic. As soon as you get that that guy, that super loner, maybe a little bit pudgy that other people pick on really for no reason. It's Vincent D'Onofrio's private pile that you put in your head for that guy. Yeah. The outcome is always that, that he would kill somebody at himself because he's gone crazy. Yeah. His character really does represent just the most defenseless. He's, you know, he's kind of a nice guy. He's a character clearly uh, a bit off, uh, not necessarily in a bad way, but just really isn't used to taking care of himself. And that fucks up everybody. The others, like animals, they just sense the weakness and pounce on him. And, you know, everything goes wrong as a result. Well, and again, it's it's another one. This is one thing that I love about Kubrick is it's another time that he explains the whole story of the film with just one thing. So he's done it with the setting. He's done it with, with, um, um, with Joker. But now he takes just the character of Private Pyle and takes him from the most innocent. I mean, the dude's... Arlie Emery comes and punches him in the solar plex and tells him to get on his knees and choke himself. And he kind of smiles when he goes to choke yeah. himself. <laughs> yeah, he's always got, like, well, he's got a dopey grin throughout like three quarters of his time on screen. Yep. And then it rather it never it never reached that middle point where he just looks like he's blank stared like everybody else. It goes from dopey grin to extreme. This dude's about to snap 40 yard stare like yeah. instantly, which is kind of what you expect to come out of the the uh, lost hog squad at the end of the film you know you you would imagine back on their way home they're all pretty close to what private pile was back back in the back in the latrine that one time yeah where does this movie 
I'll bring it back to the original question. Where does this movie stack up for you as far as Kubrick's filmography? Would you say that this is one of his better films? And if not, then what what trounces this? And, you know, the thing about him is he's only directed 12, 13 movies. Full Metal Jacket for me would probably be more bottom tier or low low middle. Well, you know, Kubrick being such a good director and having only so many films that each one is you know basically top tier for what they are and not very many films are better than than what he's done but he puts out better films than what he's done yeah it's it's not hard to maybe rank it a little bit lower for me personally i get a lot out of that film like mm-hmm. I, I rank it i rank it pretty high um definitely below you know 2001 or um i mean the shining pr- pretty much yeah, no, you know, I don't disagree. I think you got it in a pretty good spot. Going through a list of Kubrick films in my mind, it's it's really good, better than a lot of other films. Absolutely. But within Kubrick's discography, it's not one of his greatest. Yeah, I, the, the trajectory that you seem to see with many directors who are active over a long period of time, I'm talking like 30 years, 40 years, is that gradually they get worse at what they're doing. They fall victim to their own cliches. I don't think that's the case with Kubrick. I think you could probably make an argument that he did maybe get weaker uh, toward the end of his career, but I don't. I don't even know. I don't think I subscribe to that belief necessarily. I think Eyes Wide Shut is, even though he lost control of that movie because he died before it wrapped production properly. I would rank that probably a little bit higher than this one, and I think The Shining is obviously great. Uh, for me, his weakest movies are his earliest films. Something like uh, Fear and Desire was his first proper movie, and that was kind of a mess. But even that's better than a lot of, you know, if you rank that against any other director's early films, it's going to outdo it. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think, I think Paths of Glory, right, is better than Full Metal Jacket. I, I, I would put... personally put Paths of Glory as his best film. Really? Yeah. All right. Well, you know, for me, I think 2001. Uh, but again, it's ba- it's based on my perspective of what I think Kubrick's trying to say. Of you course. Know? I would say, inarguably, 2001 is probably, technically speaking, uh, his best film and probably the best made film ever. Because you, you look at the effects in that movie and they're better than whatever Warner Brothers or Disney spent $600 million on this year, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So and A lot of the ideas are, are super innovative. I specifically like the end part. Um, where I guess if it was you, you'd be looking over at yourself and then see an aged version of yourself and yeah. it looks back at you. He's but you messing around with the perception of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I specifically like that part. The the ending for me is definitely this. I, I, with, I It's not that I don't dis... It's not that I dislike 2001. I do like 2001. But for me, I probably need about two more viewings before I fully appreciate it. I really enjoy the beginning of the movie and the ending of the movie. And then everything in between kind of loses me a little bit. That's not to say that it's a bad film or that I dislike the film, though. But just to put a pin in Full Metal Jacket, do you have any like final thoughts on the movie? or For, for me, I think it's one of the, the better war movies of the time. And I think it does a great job of explaining the Viet... You know, without all the extra narrative stuff, I think it does a good job of explaining the Vietnam War 
without relying on you know blood packs and special effects for gunfights. Yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely a film most people should see. Um, but going into it with the same kind of like, oh, well, this is going to be like Platoon, or this is going to be even something like like Heartbreak Ridge. It's it's not, and it's not supposed to be. Right. You can find me at Unbeliever Media Channel on YouTube. That's a YouTube slash Unbeliever Media. I just recently changed the entire channel. It's been a great conversation here. We've done kind of an extended episode. Thanks again for popping on, and uh, we'll do another one of these soon, probably. Great. Thanks for having me.